Welcome to the AEM Education and Training Podcast, a collaboration between Brown University Emergency Medicine and the editors of the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Journal. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and here's what we've got for you today. The goal of medical education research is ultimately to improve how we train our physicians, which would hopefully translate into a better, safer healthcare system for all of us. In translational medical education research, the testing of interventions often begins with knowledge assessments and performance in simulated environments and advances to assessments of actual clinical performance before demonstrating impact on patient outcomes. But there's a gap in evaluating the impact of educational interventions on clinical performance. And to discuss that gap and an approach which could address it, we have Dr. Rose Fernandez with us. Dr. Fernandez is lead author of a recent AEM education and training article entitled, An Event-Based Approach to Measurement, Facilitating Observational Measurement in Highly Variable Clinical Settings. Dr. Fernandez is an associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and director of research in the Center for Experiential Learning and Simulation at the University of Florida. She's being interviewed today by Dr. Jessica Fujimoto, an emergency medicine education fellow at UC Fresno. Don't forget to read the full text of this article available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Hi, Dr. Fernandez. Thank you for being on the podcast with us. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off, I was wondering if you could tell us about yourself and how you got interested in this area of research. Sure. So my background, initially, I started doing simulation-based research, and um, that was starting back in about 2003, 2004, when simulation was still pretty new. As I started using simulation, I sort of realized that I was tended more towards using simulation to understand clinical processes. And that was really where my interests lie. Um, and so I started collaborating with organizational psychologists to understand how we could use simulation to improve care, not just by training, but also by just understanding the world in which we practice clinical medicine. Um, after several projects, uh, I started to become more and more involved in the team aspects of things, uh, teamwork and leadership. And that kind of evolved into doing training projects where we were assessing performance in both simulation and then for this work, translating that into the clinical environment. Oh, that's interesting. I see how that naturally flowed into this translational research. Yeah, it was, you know, in the beginning, um, it was really about building a standardized platform to understand what was happening. So using simulation to control every aspect of every piece that you wanted to measure. And then this work really required the leap, so to speak, of freeing yourself from all those constraints, um, but then measuring something that has high variability in the clinical world. Hmm. So in the study, you talk about three levels at which medical education interventions are assessed in the clinical environment. What do we know thus far about uh, these assessments at each of these translational levels? Yeah, so um, just to give a little bit of uh, background for listeners, so when we think about translational steps, normally we think about the clinical piece, right? So we think about T1 or T0, depending on what you're reading, as basic science. And then T2 is that 
clinical impact. And then T3 is that population impact. We now know that the same thing exists across multiple different types of research, including medical education. So most of the work that I've done, that others have done, has really rested in that T1 world, where what we're talking about are creating conceptual models or studying knowledge gain with a simple multiple choice test, or for me, uh, working in a simulation lab where we can have some sort of an intervention, whether it's behavioral or maybe adding new equipment or technique to something, and then measuring that um, in a simulation environment. So that's really T1. And what we know is that most of the work never leaves that that box or that level um, because of so many challenges with going to the next level, which is T2. And I think by and large, um, people would consider that transfer of knowledge. So when we talk about how do we know we've transferred knowledge to the clinical setting, that's really what that T2 measure by and large represents. Um, and then to go even beyond that would then be to be looking more at not only processes of care, but patient outcomes at the T3 level. And so we know that that T1 work is really, really important because it sets up the foundation to do the other work. But what we're still, I think, personally trying to figure out is how we make that leap, how we can have enough subjects, how we can control in our analyses for a lot of the variability that happens when you go to that T2 or T3 level. Oh, I see. That's why you said going from sim where you control everything to the clinical realm is just this huge leap and this huge unknown almost. Well, it, it is. And, you know, when you think about, so if this is how I try to explain it to, to, to people when I'm trying to sort of justify why we have these challenges, um, we all know that we all know what blood pressure means. We all know um, how to interpret it, kind of what the clinical significance is, but we don't really have that for a lot of the things we're trying to measure from an education perspective as an outcome. So not only do we have to build and then demonstrate validity around some of these measures, but then we have to think about all the variability that comes with it. So the fact that every patient isn't quite the same, and so how do I compare the performance of subjects A, B, and C with D, E, and F. I don't know how to do that and be able to capture the variability in the experience that they had. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And so you're you're identifying this gap at the level of T2. And so what about emergency medicine in particular makes this such a tough area to study? Yeah, I think it is tough in general, but I think with emergency medicine, even more so because of the high variability in our patients and in our setting. So we found early on when we were doing um, some similar work that, you know, based on the time of day alone, the team composition might be different or the resources available might be different. So when you're in the ED and you're trying to measure some of these things and all of these factors have really considerable impact on the processes you're trying to measure, then you want to capture those variables, right? You want to be able to maybe control for them or at least explain them. And that's really hard to do. And so it's not just that 
the patients have wide variability, right? I mean, think about, you know, the sepsis, right? Um, sepsis patients vary so, so much. And if you're trying to understand, quote, correct care for them, wow, you know, it, it can really be challenging to do so. And then on top of it, there are all these other factors, you know, does your, does the attending interfere? Does the team do what the uh, provider asks them to do? Are there other factors, consultants, et cetera, other patients in the ED that are impacting that experience that that provider's having? And so um, the ED, I think not other units have challenges as well, but I think for emergency medicine, it's a particular challenge. I like the comparison or the analogy to sepsis. That makes a lot of sense. Just thinking about trying to regiment our sepsis care. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the reasons we, there were several reasons we chose trauma for the study that we executed. But one of the reasons was that in the grand scheme of things, it's more standardized than, say, altered mental status or sepsis or the, you know, dreaded weak and dizzy or something like that. So, as much variability as we experienced, we tried to pick a topic that would limit that challenge. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So to back up just a little bit, in your study, your group aims to address the gap by developing an evidence-based approach to measurement, which you abbreviate EBAM. Can you tell us more about the process that you designed? Sure. So um, just to give a little bit of background, so there's something called EBAT which is an acronym for event-based training. And what that describes is a very regimented approach to simulation-based training where you define these very discrete events, you simulate them, and then you can build measures around them. Um, this process took that as much of that standardization as we could create and applied it to our measurement. And so really what we describe is a four-step process. Initially, you identify the evidence-based pieces around the care that you're trying to assess. So we knew we couldn't just have a straightforward checklist that said um, you should do all these things for trauma care because trauma patients vary. So maybe it's okay that you didn't check the blood pressure every five minutes if the patient is sitting up in bed texting with their gunshot wound to the leg, right? Um, that might be acceptable care for one patient and not acceptable care for another. Or you may have checklist items around something like placing a chest tube with one set of patients, but not with another set of patients because they didn't need a chest tube. And so this EBAT slash EBAM approach, what that does is it lets you create these clusters, if you will, of checklist items that are appropriate based on the patient themselves. So some things are required across all patients. We know all patients should get vital signs. All patients should have IV established, those types of things. So we know that. So there are these constant items that should appear for all patients. But there are clusters or events that are specific to certain patients depending upon their clinical presentation. And that's what EBAM, if this makes sense, that's what EBAM allows you to do. So it allowed us to measure our performance of our team leader and our, our care team across 360 videos representing um, injury severity scores ranging from one to 75. So we were able to 
measure performance with really not sick people and then really, really sick people. That's a very clever way to account for the variability. That's really neat. So can you take us through how you applied the EBAM process to generate a list of trauma resuscitation patient care items? Sure. So we used a four-step process, and what we really were trying to do was identify two main things. We wanted to identify the actual checklist items that would be part of our final score, but also the trigger items that would make us know that those checklist items were indicated. So first we started with um, having subject matter experts as well as a pretty decent um, review of the literature to identify processes in trauma care. And, you know, we, we started, of course, where most people I think would start, which is ATLS, and also pulled all of the simulation and clinical assessment in terms of uh, patient care and team behaviors that we could find. We've pulled all of those manuscripts and looked at what checklist items people had used, as well as what ATLS considers standard. We also went, in some cases, to specific literature, for instance, the ultrasound literature, um, just to ensure that we were meeting the standards of care for um, for EFAST and other types of um, diagnostics. And so we pulled all of those and we came up with a comprehensive list of what would be expected best practices during trauma care. And um, as I sort of mentioned earlier, you can imagine that some of these were would be grouped based on a patient having a penetrating wound, and some would be grouped based on a patient having hemorrhagic shock. So step two um, was to start grouping these items into events that would either happen all the time or checklist items that would be needed all the time, and then some that would be very specific. Um, And this, again, was also done with subject matter expert input. We then went to the third step, which is to define the triggers for those checklist items. So if so, doing a primary survey doesn't require a trigger. Everybody should have that. Those are um, items that are in everybody's checklist. But more conditional items, like those involved in treating hemorrhagic shock, would only be present if, not to be silly, but if the patient's in hemorrhagic shock. But then we had to define what that looked like. So in our, for our measure, it was two or more low blood pressures. So we said if the patient, because sometimes there'd be like an erroneous measure. So if the patient had two or more um, contiguous low blood pressures, that patient was considered to be in hemorrhagic shock. And then a whole set of items would be, quote, activated for that person's checklist. Um, and then our last step was to test and refine. So that's probably, quite honestly, one of the hardest parts. We had raters look at video. We had them do talk aloud so we would understand what they were thinking um, when they were using the checklist. We refined measures based on the fact that we either didn't see them at all or we were seeing them in different ways than we initially anticipated and um, came and then, which was the kind of the meat of the the report, the manuscript, and then came up with our end reliability measures uh, across our 360 videos. Yeah, and going through each of the steps, I when I was reading your paper, I was mostly impressed by how rigorously and how thoughtfully these patient care 
items were developed. Well, thank you. Um, we've because we've done this a lot, <laughs> um, especially with simulation, we sort of have a, a process um, in place. It's still, I think this process was harder than most because of the variability. So just when we thought we had it all figured out, then some, we'd watch a video that was a little unusual and we'd go, oh, wow, we didn't even think about X or Y. So and that's where sometimes we just had to let that go. We had to acknowledge that our measures aren't perfect, um, but we tried as much as we could to make, you know, to make edits and to make sure that at least what we were capturing was consistent, what we captured was consistent. We knew it wasn't 100% complete, but it was consistent. And then how did you study the validity of the trauma resuscitation patient care items that the EDEM process generated? Sure. So um, our first step of using subject matter experts um, allowed us to establish content validity. So that process of going through the literature using um, evidence-based work and getting subject matter expert input, both nursing actually and uh, physician, to make sure we were getting it all cor as correct as we could, let us establish content validity. Um, we then trained our raters and we gained their insight. So we got some response process evidence by letting our, uh, our raters tell us what they thought they were supposed to be seeing and how our measures maybe did or didn't reflect that. Um, we measured actual reliability. So I think probably the biggest strength of what we did was that we were able to look across a wide variety of videos and still demonstrate some internal structure evidence of validity with our reliability. Um, and that's really what this study did. This is part of a larger study where we were also able to look at um, our measures that are described here and some leadership measures. And we showed that leadership performance and patient care correlated. And that would suggest relationship with other variables, which is sort of that other piece of validity. That's really neat. And so can you summarize the results of your analysis of the validity? Sure. So I think, you know, in the end, from a quantitative standpoint, really, we have the reliability piece. So we know that our Cohen's Kappa was 0.7 across all of our measures, across all of our videos. I think um, one thing that would be reasonable to to, to critique and to ask would be, well, what about each particular, each metric, right? So each checklist item. And the challenge we had with that is that we, even with 360 videos, because not every event was activated in each um, video, we can't, like our, some of our numbers were low on individual checklist items. So, our, so we reported our reliability across all of the, the measures. Um, as I said, we have we have another study that's uh, related to this one that looked at the correlation. Uh, but from a quantitative standpoint, really, it's the reliability that's a, the piece of this study. Sure. And as you mentioned, I mean, that was taken over clinical events that had this huge range in severity score. So that's really neat. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, just the blunt trauma and penetrating trauma alone provided quite the challenge um, because 
it's the same, but it's not, right? So we really had to think about that. Um, we did end up um, excluding video where, like, if they were only in the room for a couple minutes because the patient went straight to the OR or something like that. So we made sure that we at least had time for these care processes to unfold. Um, and the average length of video was, I believe, about 27 minutes. So it was a decent amount of time that we were able to observe for each care event. So in this study, you specifically look at trauma resuscitations, as we've mentioned, and we sort of alluded to, but you've been evaluating overall team performance. So based on your findings, what other applications do you envision for the EBAM process? I really think that you could use this for almost any care process that you can deconstruct into discrete steps. So anything like cardiac resuscitation, um, stroke care, I think where you would fall down a little bit or have challenges is with something that is a little bit more complex in that the, um, how can I describe it? The, the checklist items would be too interconnected. Something like a palliative care discussion where really it, there's so much variability on what the patient and the family might say that it'd be very difficult to define these discrete events. I don't think that this would be the right avenue for something like that. Um, but I think you know, we could think about it for a lot of different clinical care processes that we were trying to measure. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine developing like triggers for the palliative care discussion. <laughs> That's so complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think you mentioned that this could be applied to a single provider as well, in addition to team performance. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think there's any um, rule about how you uh, applied this. I do think that if you applied it to an individual within a team setting, that could still be done, but I think you would have to maybe consider the impact of the team members on the individual. So I think um, as attending physicians, we've seen, and I've, prob and I've been more guilty probably than most of you know, stepping in and um, overtaking a situation. And so you would have to consider how to handle that in your analysis, if you were looking at the performance of an individual, but there was a, a team around them where they were either effective or ineffective at implementing that individual's plan. Uh, I see. That would get very complicated. Yeah, people have tried um, and we've tried. I don't think we've been super successful at that part of it. Hmm. So you mentioned um, some associated research um, in your project. What do you think are the next steps in this area of translational medical education research? Well, for us, I think, for us personally, I think we've been fortunate that we've been able to build a pretty strong T1 foundation. And so we can start looking at things like leadership in a lot of different clinical settings and clinical problems. I think for our field in general, um, it really is to try to push ourselves to that T2 level, but we need some, we need help, right? We need funding. We need um, the ability to publish work like, like mine and have it be recognized as meaningful because now somebody can pick it up and try to apply it to their own work. I think um, it's in some ways more common to see methodology papers in clinical trials but not in our 
education world. And so I think as we start to do more of this type of work, then people can really make that leap and we can start to prove that there is a return on investment for this education work and hopefully it'll build from there. I just, I think our work is challenging. I really do. It has challenges different than clinical trials and um, we have to kind of be able to, to move forward with it, but that requires, that requires money and, um, and expertise in areas that don't always overlap clinical trial expertise. Well, I hope, I hope that this is sort of a early step in getting more literature published in this arena. I consider myself very lucky um, and fortunate to have this work published because like I said, a lot of times methodology work doesn't make it into our world. And so um, I thank the, the journal for allowing us to disseminate this work. Well, Dr. Fernandez, thank you so much for talking with us today. This is really exciting to hear about your research. Well, thank you so, so much for reaching out. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this AEM Education and Training Podcast. Be sure to read the full text of this article, available on our blog at brownemblog.com. Subscribe to all our AEM podcasts on Apple Podcasts. Search for AEM Early Access, all one word. Today's music is by Scott Holmes. I'm Dr. Gita Pensa, and we'll see you next time.